On the day of November 13, 1974, 23-year-old Ronald DeFeo Jr. burst into a local bar shouting that his parents had been shot and he needed help. A small group of bar patrons followed the hysterical man to his house to find a gruesome scene. Six of the seven family members who lived at 112 Ocean Avenue in the town of Amityville on Long Island, New York, had been murdered. Ronald Sr., his wife, Louise, and four of their children, 18-year-old Don, 13-year-old Allison, 12-year-old Mark, and 9-year-old John Matthew were found face down in their beds, shot to death with a rifle. What was particularly chilling was that there was no evidence of a struggle and none of the DeFeo's neighbors heard gunshots, despite the fact that the rifle at the house did not have a silencer. A post-mortem also revealed that none of the victims had been drugged or otherwise poisoned. Ronald Jr. initially asserted that a mafia hitman by the name of Louis Fellini had murdered his family while he watched. However, it was determined that Fellini had an alibi which placed him out of the state at the time. Police suspicion quickly landed on Ronald Jr., who eventually admitted to killing his family. He did not provide a motive for the killings, but did request to receive his father's life insurance payout, which led some to speculate that Ronald Jr.'s motives were financial. It was noted that Ronald Jr. and his father did have a contentious relationship, and some accounts indicated Ronald Sr. was abusive and domineering. Ronald Jr. reportedly had threatened his father with a gun on at least one occasion. His parents' response was to appease him with a weekly allowance. In the following years, Ronald Jr. would change his account of the murder several times. In one version, he claimed his sister, Dawn, killed their father, his mother killed his four siblings, and he killed his mother in self-defense. In another account, Ronald Jr. stated Don killed the family and then he killed her. While Ronald Jr. was not known to have any significant mental health problems, he was said to have abused drugs and alcohol, and he reported hearing a voice telling him to kill his family in the days leading up to the murders. Armed with this, Ronald Jr. attempted to plead insanity at his trial in October of 1975. His defense, however, was unsuccessful and he was found guilty. He remains incarcerated in New York, serving six consecutive 25-year-to-life sentences. He has been denied parole multiple times. Thirteen months after the murders, George and Kathy Lutz bought 112 Ocean Avenue at a reduced price given the house's infamous history. The Lutzes, their two sons, Daniel and Christopher, and their daughter, Missy, felt very fortunate to get such a large home for such a low price, and they opted to pay an extra few hundred dollars to keep the DeFeo's furniture, including the beds where they had been murdered. Shortly after they moved into the home, they reported experiencing strange and disturbing phenomena. George, who was said to have dabbled in the occult, reported waking up at 3.15 every morning, which was the time the DeFeo family had been killed. The family also witnessed swarms of flies, green slime dripping down the walls, unexplained cold spots, and strange odors. They decided to have a priest come and bless the home, who they had deliberately not told about the strange phenomena. The priest reported hearing a disembodied voice yell, Get out! In a room, he then told the family to avoid. But even after the blessing, the problems continued. George reported witnessing Kathy, Daniel, and Christopher levitate from their beds. Knives were said to move around the kitchen on their own, and they reported witnessing a pig-like creature with red eyes looking in their windows. A mere 28 days after moving in, the Lutzes left the house, never to return. Shortly thereafter, the famed paranormal investigators Ed and Lorraine Warren visited 112 Ocean Avenue. 
Lorraine Warren was quoted at the time as saying that it was the most evil she and Ed had ever encountered in one place. She claimed that the evil there even followed them home. She vowed that she would never return to the house. The Lutzes eventually shared their story, which became the basis for the 1977 book The Amityville Horror by Jay Anson, and the 1979 film adaptation of the same name. Given the success of the book and the movie, many were suspicious that the Lutzes made up the story for financial gain. Under such intense criticism, both George and Kathy volunteered to take polygraphs regarding their experiences. Both George and Kathy were determined to be telling the truth. Their son Daniel continues to be adamant that the house on Ocean Avenue was haunted. To this day, Daniel claims he was possessed by dark forces while he lived there. Their other son, Christopher, has maintained that strange phenomena occurred in the house, but noted that none was as sensational as that described in books and movies. Both sons believe the haunting was unrelated to the DeFeo murders, but were rather the result of their father's involvement with the occult. Rather than ghosts, they believe the occurrences were related to demonic forces. Missy Lutz has never publicly spoken about the haunting. This episode is about the Amityville haunting. And welcome to Psychology After Dark, the podcast where we explore the dark side of the human condition. We're your hosts, Dr. Jessica McCono and Dr. David Morelos. Hey, everyone. We're so excited to finally be back for season three. We're back. That's right. We had to end season two rather abruptly, we know. And the reason is because in June, I was diagnosed with breast cancer. And while I was extremely fortunate that it was caught very early, David and I needed to focus our attention on my treatment and recovery. And now I'm happy to report I am cancer-free and fully recovered, so we are finally able to focus on other things, including our beloved podcast. We received numerous messages and emails while we were on hiatus, so thanks to everyone who reached out with kind words and episode ideas. The idea for this episode was a result of an email we received from our listener, Jacob, who requested a paranormal case. So thank you, Jacob, for that request. And we thought this would be a good one since it's such a well-known case. I think there really were a couple of different directions we could have gone with this episode, since this case also has the element of an infamous mass murder. But we actually opted not to discuss that part of it because we will be talking about a similar case the Chris Watts case in a subsequent episode. While there are certainly differences between the cases, both were mass murders committed by family annihilators. So David, what I love about ghost stories is that almost everyone has one. Oh, absolutely. Do you have a ghost story? I'm sure I do. I'd have to think about it. 
Well, I myself can think of a few different instances where I experienced strange and spooky things that I can't totally rationally explain, which you know for me is kind of weird because that's my dig. So a poll conducted by CBS News in 2005 suggested 48% of Americans believed in ghosts. And a more recent poll conducted by YouGov in 2012 suggested that about 45% of Americans believe in ghosts. So really, that's pretty similar findings across studies. Yeah. And while that's not a majority of Americans, it's a significant portion of the population. When we look at the number of Americans who actually report seeing a ghost, a couple of different polls produced very different results. So a poll conducted by the Pew Research Center in 2009 indicated 18% of the respondents endorsed seeing a ghost, but a survey commissioned by Groupon in 2018 showed 60% of the 2,000 respondents said they had seen a ghost, and 40% believed their pet had seen a ghost, which I thought was pretty interesting. You know, people will talk about how their dog or their cat was just staring at a corner, or maybe their dog started barking at something that they couldn't see. Right. Animals act strangely sometimes. Yeah. And so it's interesting that a sizable portion of people believe that maybe some of that strange behavior was related to their pet seeing a ghost. Yeah, that's interesting. So whether this reflects a true increase, you know, from 2009 to 2018 in the number of Americans experiencing ghostly phenomenon, or if it's just that the individuals polled in the Groupon Commission poll were in some way different than those polled by the Pew Research Center, you know, we can't really be sure. But either way, we know that many Americans report having had such experiences. So anytime that many people have similar experiences, it makes me wonder what's going on. Is it possible that people are really seeing ghosts? You know, I suppose so. But as I said, given my nature, I wonder if there are some other more scientifically based explanations for these. There are actually several different explanations that have been proposed to explain these experiences. While it's possible hallucinations of ghosts could occur as part of a psychotic disorder, such as schizophrenia, given the sheer number of people who are endorsing these experiences, the vast majority of them do not have a psychotic mental health disorder. So while that might be an explanation for some cases, it certainly doesn't explain all of these cases. One common belief is that many of these experiences are the result of suggestion. So I think we've all had the experience of thinking we hear or see something after having watched a scary movie, especially if you're watching it at home, alone, and it's dark, right? All of a sudden you hear maybe the house settling, and what does your mind turn to? It's like, oh my gosh, there's a serial killer breaking into my home. Okay, well that that experience I've had many times. Yeah, so what happens is that our brains expect to see something, So they interpret benign stimuli as being something supernatural. This is the whole your brain is playing tricks on you explanation. And I think it's really legitimate. We can quote unquote trick ourselves into seeing or hearing all sorts of things. And suggestion can also alter how we remember things. There's been a lot of research in the area of eyewitness identification that has demonstrated time and again that our memories are malleable And what we remember is impacted by what occurs both while the memory is being encoded and when people are questioned about it afterward. Things such as heightened emotional state and suggestive language can significantly alter our memories. A couple of other interesting theories I came across in researching this topic 
were electromagnetic fields and infrasound. Electromagnetic fields surround us all the time without us being aware of them. Neuroscientist Michael Persinger used a device called the God Helmet to test the perceptions of his research subjects. This helmet is worn by the participant and it produces weak magnetic fields around the subject's brain. These waves are similar in intensity to those produced by things like a telephone or a hairdryer. Persinger reported that many of his subjects who wore the God Helmet reported experiencing the presence of a supernatural being, which he attributed to the electromagnetic fields affecting the temporal lobes. Now, it should be noted that attempts to replicate this study have been unsuccessful, leading several to speculate that his outcomes were the result of a placebo effect. However, Persinger has countered that the replications were not consistent with his original research design. Interestingly, many places that have been reported as being haunted have shown electromagnetic anomalies. But most people think this is probably not what's going on. And so there's still some question about whether changes in the electromagnetic field affect our brains in such a way that lead people to experience strange sensations that some will label as being supernatural. Another, I think, probably more promising explanation is infrasound, which is low-frequency noise that is usually not audible to humans. And so, you guys, I did so much research on infrasound in preparing for this episode that I'm pretty sure David is like sick of hearing about this. It's actually an interesting conversation, what can be done with sound and and some of the things that you pulled up when you were researching that. Yeah, I mean, I know that this isn't exactly psychology, you guys, but it is just so incredibly interesting. So infrasound can be produced intentionally, but it can also occur as a result of natural phenomenon, such as storms, wind, and earthquakes. These low-frequency sounds appear to affect humans because the frequencies and amplitudes are the same as some of those generated in our own bodies. Our muscles and organs actually emit sound, even though it's not something we typically perceive. I just found that so fascinating. Now, although humans cannot typically hear infrasound, many animals can. And many believe infrasound is how animals anticipate natural disasters and know to leave an area. This is not something that's been proven And another theory is that animals could actually be responding to electromagnetic changes, but infrasound is something that's a contender for explaining why animals leave the area before disasters occur. Or when they act strangely, like you were referring to at the beginning of the podcast. Right, yeah. So, like I said, we're getting pretty sciencey with all this stuff, and so it's a, a little bit out of the realm of my expertise. But there has been quite a bit of research into infrasound and how it impacts humans. There was a British study done in May 2003 by Richard Lord and Richard Wiseman, where they played music to an audience at a London concert hall. Some of the songs included infrasound, while others did not. What the researchers found was that during the songs laced with infrasound, 22% of the participants reported experiencing increased unusual experiences including feelings of uneasiness, sadness, nervousness, and chills. Other research has suggested infrasound can induce nausea, fatigue, sleep problems, and feelings of revulsion or aversion. There's a fairly well-known paper authored by Vic Tandy and Dr. Tony Lawrence of Coventry University in 1998 entitled Ghosts in the Machine. In this paper, the authors suggested that infrasound vibrations might also be the explanation for some ghost sightings. 
The idea is that some sound waves that operate near the same frequency as the human eye can cause optical illusions, which people could interpret as being ghosts or spirits. What many of the studies on infrasound have found is that different people react differently to this low-frequency noise. Some people appear to be more sensitive to infrasound than others. So does this perhaps explain why some people are said to be more quote-unquote sensitive to paranormal phenomenon than others? Hmm. Are they really just experiencing infrasound differently than other people? I think that theory makes a lot of sense. I don't know about infrasound being a cause of a supernatural experience. Again, that's just my transpersonal sort of origins. I don't. I have a really hard time believing that something physical can invoke such a strong internal experience. Again, I have a hard time buying that something, an external stimuli can cause such a powerful internal experience and that one causes the other. I think that they are correlated. It does seem, from the research, it does seem that it's correlated for certain individuals. But I think you can, can kind of think back on the whole suggestion piece, right? So if you're in, if you're at home, you're watching a scary movie, you're by yourself, it's nighttime and you hear the house settle or you hear a branch r- brush against the window um, from some wind, right. right? Your brain can ascribe several different meanings to that physical stimuli. Mm-hmm. So, you know, maybe when you're not already kind of primed for something spooky, you think, oh, that's just a, a branch against the window. It's windy outside. It's no big deal. But when you're already kind of primed and in that heightened emotional state, maybe you interpret it as being something different. And I think perhaps infrasound could be the same way where it's affecting people and then they're kind of labeling their physiological response to it. Yeah, I I mean, I understand the concept behind that. I mean, for sure. I mean, when you know, there's there's always the power of suggestion, but it's interesting how things sort of fall into place we call that synchronicity right when certain things sort of happen at these incredibly appropriate times that signify to us something symbolic in other words it's interesting that you know why would you know something like that some weird phenomena like that like just like you said some random branch hitting the window right at that particular time it's just an interesting sort of phenomena to me, you know, that's it's synchronicity again, like something is happening deliberately at that particular time to make you aware. Like it's like it's like the universe sort of knows that if this happens, if this makes a sound right now, it's going to have an effect on you whereas at a different time it wouldn't. Well, I think that's one possible explanation, but another explanation is that those things are happening all the time. And we're just not, our attention isn't focused on them. But that's what, uh, that's exactly what I'm saying. So the fact that it's happening at that particular time makes it symbolic of something as opposed to any other time. Hmm, that's a very interesting theory. <laughs> <laughs> it is. I don't, I don't, yeah. Just, just throwing that out there. I don't know. Well, so, so, you know, my infrasound ex- explanation, my electromagnetic field explanation, the power of suggestion You know, I think that those are all possible explanations for kind of ghostly phenomenon. But I think there is, of course, one other pretty obvious one, right? Some people just make things up. Sure. So I think that might be kind of a segue for you. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So for this case, I wanted to start by saying that there is a lot of information about Amityville that I wasn't aware of. 
this is one of those stories that everyone seems to know something about, but few seem to have a full sort of understanding of the case. There are a lot of characters to this case that all surround the one particular house located in Amityville on Long Island, New York. So the basics, as you talked about, Jessica, are that a family was killed in this house located at 112 Ocean Avenue. There was a lot of speculation concerning how the family died, but blame ultimately fell on the oldest son. That was Ronald DeFeo Jr. There always seems to be a lot of giveaways, so to speak, about Ronald Jr.'s stories about how the murders happened. The first being, of course, that his story kept changing. I read information that his story changed completely at least three times over the course of the investigation. The most well-known incarnation of his story was that he was somehow possessed by a dark force and was hearing voices that told him to kill his parents and siblings. I'm not going to go over all the case evidence that led to his conviction, but suffice to say, if you do look up the case, there seems to be many fingers pointing at Ronald Jr. as the one who had motives to kill his family. A psychiatrist who evaluated him diagnosed him with antisocial personality disorder, which as Jessica and I know, is probably the single most used diagnosis when it comes to criminals and incarcerated men. Even if they do not meet the full diagnosis, my guess is that many of those who are considered criminals would fall somewhere on this personality disorder spectrum. Again, we're talking about a personality disorder here, not a mental health condition. The biggest definer of a personality disorder, and Jessica, you can help me out here, as it pertains to the legality, is that personality disorders are volitional in nature. A person chooses this orientation toward the world around them. Yeah. So, I mean, personality disorders are mental health disorders, according to the DSM. But when we're talking about the legal sense, generally the courts have not accepted personality disorders as mental health disorders for the purpose of like an insanity defense. Right. So, okay, so this is where the story starts. Ronald DeFeo Jr. is convicted of murdering his family and sent to prison where he still is today. Enter the Lutz family, two parents and three children. They buy the house thinking it's their dream house and they're getting it for dirt cheap. 28 days go by and they hightail it out of the house with nothing but three days worth of clothing each. According to the story, that was all they took. Everything else they had brought with them when they moved in stayed in the house. This included all the furniture, much of which had been bought from Ronald DeFeo Jr., including the very beds that his family were murdered in. Crazy. Yeah. Yeah, I don't want anything to do with furniture that somebody's been murdered in. Thanks. Yeah, you know, it's just like, it just seems like a bad idea. Yeah, seems like a bad idea, but okay. Anyway, the Lutzes flee the house, but they don't put it up for sale immediately. This is really where the legend of 112 Ocean Avenue truly begins. The Lutz family starts to tell their story. This is when it truly became a paranormal case, as far as I can tell. The Lutz family described the now infamous room full of flies, the green slime running down the wall, and the cold spots in the house. Adding to the credibility of the Lutz family story is the fact that they took polygraphs voluntarily and passed them, and that the famous demonologist team got involved. The Warren team are probably considered the grandparents of demonology, and they were seen a great deal working on cases where demons in particular were suspected. Ed was self-educated on the subject, whereas Lorraine claimed to actually be a clairvoyant. The Amityville haunting is by far and away their most famous case, and near as I can tell, what really made them famous back in the 1970s. So I really wanted to start off by talking about the Warrens' theory about how the residents at 112 Ocean Avenue became haunted. They speculated that it was due to it being a site where Native Americans of years past kept those who were sick and dying. 
Okay, so cue the cliche mirror. Right, right? yeah. I feel like there was a lot of cases back in the 70s and 80s where, like, that was the explanation. That was the explanation for the Poltergeist movies, right? Right. right. It seems like we heard that theory a lot, you know. We don't have a cliche meter here. We should, you know, and I don't know how cliche it was back in the 1970s, but at this day and age, it's definitely cliche. It's been used over and over and over again. It actually makes perfect sense from my postmodern sort of critical theory orientation that the Warrens would believe something like this. They were clear throughout their careers that they came from a strong Catholic religious orientation. They also believed that people who lacked, quote, faith, as they referred to it, were more likely to be possessed by demons. So right from the beginning, we have two people from a very clear religious orientation, and some might argue with an agenda, speculating that the nature-based religious beliefs of the Native Americans who lived on the land prior to white settlers somehow cursed it because isn't that just like all pagan and otherwise godless indigenous people to do, right? To be fair, the idea seems, at worst, overtly racist and at least ethnocentric today. But we have to remember that we're talking about the 1970s, when the idea was way more acceptable as an explanation. But I'll be honest, I think this is a predictable explanation by the Warrens for what, if anything, is going on here. So right from the beginning, the Warrens kind of lose me in their explanation about the house being cursed by some kind of Native American evil. Also, we can't ignore the fact that this case pretty much made the Warrens' career as it is their most famous case. So, they did have an interest in making a big deal of it. I mean, seriously, how much notoriety would they have achieved if they came away from that case with something like, you know, there's nothing here to see, folks. Right, that's a good point. Okay. So anyway, I take the Warrens' explanation for the house with a grain of salt. There is also the Lutz children who do continue to claim that strange things happened while they lived at the house but not like the story that was told. From my own research, the two brothers claimed that they witnessed some very bizarre stuff while living in the house that convinced them that the house was haunted by dark forces, while the youngest daughter, I read, has yet to speak about the case. It was also reported that the Lutz family had fabricated the story to capitalize on the house being the site of the DeFeo murders. When the Lutzes finally did sell the house to the Cromarty family, it was without incident. In fact, the Cromartys only claimed to be haunted by people fascinated with the Amityville story. Not any kind of demonic presence. And you know, it's interesting. I heard that they had to change the address of the house because it was like just nonstop people coming by to see it. Sure, sure. It It became one of those macabre fascinations, right? Yeah. So, as a transpersonalist, I'm willing to consider even some outlandish ideas. But I have to say that the notion of, quote, pure evil, so to speak, is a bit of a hard sell for me. This is what, essentially, Lorraine Warren called the presence at the Amityville house. This, of course, alludes to a demon, if not Satan himself. This idea, of course, is the creation of a whole Christian system of belief that pits forces of pure good versus pure evil and the like. The funny thing is, is this is a relatively new invention in the course of human history. Even in the Old Testament, Satan is portrayed differently than in the New Testament, which is this character of pure evil with demons being his minions or armies or whatever. Okay, fine. But we have to acknowledge the cultural context in which the rigidly dualistic system is playing out. I, for one, find it difficult to pit pure anything against pure anything especially good versus evil. That simply has not been my personal experience in life. I've seen many try to create this kind of dualism, but usually to advance some kind of agenda that either sells books 
or movies or to attract people to becoming religious devotees of one faith or another. I think the single biggest theme throughout our podcast has been that only by exploring and striving to understand the darkness can we seek to keep it from consuming us. And I think we as humans do become consumed by darkness in many ways. But does this somehow make us pure evil? I wouldn't say so. I think it proves that by being human we are capable of incredible acts of goodness and darkness. There is never day without the night. So darkness is a part of humanity. End of story. But evil? That's something else. While I am fully committed to understanding darkness, evil is one of those rigid concepts that have meaning theoretically to me, but I have yet to witness directly. So, and that comes from somebody who has worked with criminals, including drug addicts, murderers, and sex offenders, and even a few psychopaths for the last 17 years. Some very dark characters. But evil implies something fully invested in going against everything that is good in our worldview. In the 1950s, we thought communists were evil. I remember in grade school in the 1980s, we were all convinced that if the Soviets took over America, we would have to go to school on Saturdays. Oh my God. That's funny that that was like the worst thing ever. Ever. That's pure evil. school kids. (laughs) (laughs) So of course we thought they were evil. As we grew older, many of us seemed to realize that people are people regardless of their ideology. Later on, it was found out that much of the anti-communist rhetoric had more to do with sustaining an arms race to enrich some very shadowy business interests. Some might call that evil. Right. So the idea of demons or creatures of pure evil taking over people or haunting houses is difficult for me to wrap my head around, but anything is possible. In many non-Christian belief systems around the world, there exists some very dark and tricksterish characters, supernatural characters. But again, these tend to play the role of the dark counterpart of the light, not in opposition to, but as a part of the full spectrum of what humanity is capable of. In other words, there will probably not be any kind of ultimate battle between the two. Just like there will never be a battle between the light and the dark, they will always coexist and enrich each other. So let's take this idea of the demon, getting back to the the Warren's idea of it. To me, this is simply a way that we as humans personify, that is, make it into some kind of person, our own darkness, if we want to use the word evil, our evil side. An old Native American piece of wisdom goes something like, you have a good wolf on one shoulder and a bad one on the other. Which is stronger? Well, the one you feed. So, for someone who is wrestling with an addiction, for instance, he is choosing to feed the bad wolf, or his darkness, or his evil, or his demons, thereby making them stronger. In this sense, yes, demons are ruling him, I would argue. But they are his demons, being a personification of some kind of psychological darkness that he has yet to deal with in his own life. That's quite a bit different than a supernatural being inhabiting his body and making him do bad things, I would argue. Even though it could probably feel that way. Sure. This could very well be the case in Amityville. There were demons that Ronald Jr. carried around with him as unresolved psychological issues, which were often expressed in his basic antisocial behavior, starting with being abused by his reportedly domineering father. Add to this some psychopathy and you have a recipe for a killer. Then add in a $200,000 insurance policy and you have a motive, all of which served to help convict Ronald Jr. So what are the Lutz family? There were claims that they admitted to making up the whole thing, although again, the Warrens disputed this. They believed the Lutz story, even against the lawyer who claimed they made up the story while drinking wine together one night. I'm willing to accept that the Lutz family did experience some paranormal occurrences. People experience the paranormal all the time and in many different places. 
but they did admit that the little details that suggested any of these experiences were, quote, evil in nature, such as the green slime and the flies, were made up. So again, it seems like we're drawing on a false dichotomy of good versus evil for the purposes of telling a story. So, quick analogy. America is politically divided right now. I think we can all agree on that. Yes. So, even though there are many sides, the overall narrative seeks to divide us into the so-called left versus the so-called right. What makes it difficult for these sides to communicate is the idea that they both believe in their hearts that they are the so-called good ones. It's the other side that's bad or evil or whatever. Not because it is evil, but because both believe that they are on the side of the righteous. Now, I could be wrong, but a demon in the paranormal slash biblical sense would probably never argue that it's the good one. This goes to show that we fight each other as people because we believe we're doing it usually for the just cause. Neither side claims to be the evil side, so the idea of this binary is one that, to me, is made up. But there is no denying that certain places can have a strong effect on us. You know what I was thinking about, Jessica? What's that? What you told me about going to see a movie with your friend at the Aurora Theater where 12 people were killed and 70 others were injured by James Holmes. Yeah, we went, um, it was shortly after they had reopened the theater right. and we actually saw a movie in that particular theater. Wow. And uh, yeah, it was very, um, it was very hard. I don't even remember what movie we saw. Like, that should tell you something. It was very hard to focus and not think about that. Right. You stated that you had a, ve a very visceral reaction to being there. Yeah, it was just like knowing what had happened there. And again, I don't know that it was anything particularly about the building or the seats or the screen, but just the fact that I knew what had occurred in that room it gave me a very unsettled feeling. Right. And I have no doubt that this was the case. The energy attached to a place where something like that has happened, I think, is going to be very dark. If there were or are demons, it was the demons that home himself continues to carry with him for whatever reason or reasons as a personification of his unresolved psychological issues. So I think that that's the key here. Demons, as far as I can tell, exist in us as metaphors for darkness that we each carry around and sometimes can be overwhelmed by. We've all done bad things in our lives, the degree of which can determine just how overwhelmed by our darkness we were at the time. But the idea of pure evil as a supernatural being inhabiting a location for the sake of causing as much trouble to us as humans as possible... Yeah, I'm just not seeing it. Not only that, but it's like, okay, so their whole point was just to like make slime come down the walls and and lots of like it seems like a lot of energy. It, <laughs> sure. You know. I mean, I guess if you have nothing else to do. Right. Maybe not, then. I don't know. Yeah. So, you know, I hear Ed Warren from one of his interviews saying, "Well, that's the nature of demons. They trick you into believing they don't exist." Or that they are something else or whatever. I would argue, no, you trick yourself into believing your demons don't exist. In addictions, we call that denial. Nothing supernatural about it. It is very easy to project our own darkness onto some kind of supernatural or mythical creature. That is not to say that evil does not exist. Every day, we, you and I, Jessica, we work with people who have committed evil acts. But I think the key is that we work with these men because on some level we believe they can be redeemed. There is light in them as well. I've dealt with some very scary characters in my past 17 years, but not a one that I thought was completely irredeemable. Obviously, being redeemed is a choice that each of these men have to make for themselves, but I've always believed that it is possible. 
They can choose to nurture their good side and move forward from there. But nothing in my personal experience has ever suggested to me that creatures of pure evil exist strictly to make our lives a living hell. That, of course, is not to suggest that anyone out there who has had an experience like this is wrong, because I'm sure there are those who have had those kind of encounters with what they feel to be is pure evil or demonic forces, but I haven't. And that evidence, the evidence presented here just doesn't convince me. So quickly, since I've been blathering on and on on the subject of demons, what to make about the Lutz experience? Like you, your experience in the Aurora movie theater, Jessica, I feel like we have an intuition about a dark energy residing in places where really bad things have happened. You could call this lurking demons if you wanted to. But I could see the Lutz family experiencing what some of us might call a haunting due to the nature of the gruesome crimes that took place there. I do think that some places can give us the creeps because we can sense that something really dark happened. And that's not to make mention of ghosts or disembodied consciousness of people who have passed, but for whatever reason are tied to a particular place. And that's another, you know, whole nother conversation that we'll probably get to later. Yeah, I have a feeling that we're not done with this whole topic, and so we'll probably have other cases that we'll talk about. But, you know, it's interesting, and I think that it's something that people, pretty much everybody probably has a theory about what's happening when people are having experiences of seeing ghosts or being in places that are haunted. So we kind of want to know what you guys think. You know, are ghosts real? Are they just our minds playing tricks on us? Or demons? Are demons real? Right. Or are they result of some kind of scientific explanation? Electromagnetic fields, sound waves? Or are they just things that people make up? You know, I was thinking it would be fun to have some of our listeners share their ghost stories and experiences on our social media. Because even if they're not real... I mean, and they may be, right? But either way, I think it's kind of fun to talk about. So anyway, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Psychology After Dark. You can also leave some comments on the discussion page on our website at psychologyafterdark.com. And, you know, before we wrap things up, I just wanted to talk a little bit about season three. So we did 16 episodes in season one which was a ton of work. It was a lot of work. (laughs) It was a lot of work. And we did 11 for season two before we had to cut it off. And, you know, for now, David and I, we do this, this podcast strictly as a hobby. I don't know if you guys knew that. But we don't have any sponsors. We don't get compensated for it in any way. We just do it because we love talking about psychology. And, you know, maybe someday down the road that'll change. But for right now, that's really how we run this podcast. And, you know, when I got sick, it really caused me, and I think you too, David, to reevaluate things. Right. Um, Especially how we spend our time and energy. And there was actually a discussion about potentially ending the podcast. You know, we were feeling overwhelmed and just didn't know if it was reaching that many people or if people were even really still enjoying it. And no sooner did we have that conversation that we started to get so many emails and messages on social media asking when we would be back or telling us something they had gotten out of listening to the podcast or sending in episode ideas. And there was just messages of general encouragement. And it was a pretty clear sign to us that we needed to continue this project. Okay, so again, synchronicity. (laughs) There you go. Perfect example of that. Yeah. So that being said, one of the things that we decided is to limit our seasons to 10 episodes. 
We know that's nowhere near what season one was, but we want to continue to enjoy this podcast and not feel like it's work or like it's a chore. So with that being said, we have our episode list for season three, and I think we've picked some really interesting cases. Many are from listener suggestions like this episode, and some are just things that we've really been wanting to talk about. But even if we don't get to the topic that you suggested to us on this season, fear not. We have a running list of episode ideas and we write down the suggestions you guys send to us. So please keep them coming. Some definite real good ones too. Things Um, that I would not have thought of. Yeah, totally. And it's so great to get those from you guys and to hear what you guys want to hear about. So, you know, thank you guys so much for joining us for episode one of season three and for all of the positive emails that you've sent us, all the ratings, all the reviews, the encouragement. We really appreciate it. And we'll be back in a couple of weeks with a brand new episode. Thanks for joining us. The information contained in our podcast, on our webpage, and on our social media pages is for entertainment purposes only. All views expressed are solely those of the individuals involved and do not represent the opinions of any entity whatsoever with which we have been, are now, or will be affiliated. The information is not meant to diagnose or treat any mental health condition. If you are experiencing mental health symptoms, we encourage you to contact a mental health provider in your community. If you are experiencing a mental health emergency, please call 911 or go to the nearest emergency room. Today's episode was written and hosted by Dr. David Morelos and me, Dr. Jessica McCono. It was edited and produced by Dr. David Morelos. The songs in this episode were Dubstep Slow Motion by Cool Loop and The Arrival by Liskus, both provided by Gemendo. <laughs>